All right, guys, I'm going to be lazy and sit down today. How's everybody doing? We're doing good, everybody. Gary, good to see you. All these people who drive from the longest distances made it, and all those who live in New Haven didn't. What does that say? I guess you're a hearty souls. There we go. We got a New Havener over there. Me too. That's true. You're down down now. Yeah. That's true. Thank God. Well, I'm glad y'all are here. It's, it is a cold night. We are missing a few, but that's good. We'll we'll move forward. So let's talk about these uh, roundtables. Uh, spiritualities in, organized religions out. What'd y'all say about that? True. True. <laughs> that's a perception. What's what's the? Uh, how do they express their disdain? What are some of the? Why are people so? anti-organized religion right now, you think? They want to be their own authority. And they yeah. don't want to have a seat of authority telling them what to believe. All right, that's, that's a very diagnostic answer that, that basically it's back to a sin problem right, <laughs> is right. what you just said because of their sin, sin, sin. All right, that's maybe one, that's potentially one reason, yeah. In spirituality, you kind of make up your own. Yeah, so back to his point. Yeah, there's a kind of self-lordship. So it is suspicious. That's a good observation there. It's a highly suspicious approach in that, you know, that that was, I mean, way before the, the concept of spirituality was devised, my father used to say this kind of stuff. And, um, and uh, you know, well, my religion's out there on the lake every Sunday morning where he'd go fishing. We've heard that. And, uh, and I, I remember saying back to him, yeah, isn't that convenient? The fish never talk back at you. <laughs> Those fish don't preach, do they? There's no de- declarative function. There's, the there, yeah, well, man, you might enjoy that, Brad. Well, come on, you know, we, church, we people talk too much. All right, what else? What do you think? But okay, so that's a that's a diagnostic from our own vantage point. Kind of shows your your theology a bit. But what are some other things that might be more understandable from the vantage point of people's disdain for organized religion? There's a lot of history of bad behavior okay. within organized yeah. uh, religions. So one could be the failures of the church yeah. and the way in which we've lost the confidence. Yeah. Uh, we've lost uh, moral authority, is yeah. the term. So that's one. And we, we need to be honest about that and, and be willing to confess. Even in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, we need to confess our sins as a church, uh, the sins of the church. Okay, what else? What other, or what are some of the other reasons why there's a general distrust or disdain for the church? Well, people are finding other things that meet those needs. Okay, good. Uh, like AA. I mean, AA mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. has to be mm-hmm. yeah. something that it's become. Right. Like spirituality is, yeah. can be anything you need it to be. Okay, good. Yeah. There's a lot of alternatives. Even so, just socialization. I mean, for, for, there's so many perks that comes with being a part of a church that you can find in a club. You can find in a social organization. You can find in some cause-driven benevolent society. You know, you're, you're in this for whatever. Save the birds. And you get the same sense of purpose and cause. So there's, there's a, so what all that demonstrates, though, is that how the church has been reduced to a moral cause. And, and that if it's just a moral cause, well, there's a lot of good moral causes. So that would be another issue, losing sight of the real issue of the church, which is what? The gospel, reconciliation with God. It gets at the very heart of what the church is about. The problem is 
Okay, there you go. So, a lot of what? What have? What are some other reasons? Yeah. Anything else you think of? Dissension within denominations. Dissension. So a lack of confidence. The lack of unity among the churches that then produce a kind of well. The things that I hear a lot from Lisa, working in a community of unbelievers at school, is there is a lot of a sense of abuse, emotional abuse, guilt-ridden. Moralism, Phariseeism, they're, they're, they just see all churches who are serious churches as even the, the idea of proselytizing. You know, you think about that. That's, that's a form in their mind of a subtle, you're basically condemning me if you're trying to convert me. You're saying that I'm not right. And so there's a real sense of guilt, you know, that can come from that. Okay. So that, I think it's legitimate that we at least need to acknowledge that there's a real disdain out there. Um, this, of course, raised the question of whether or not the church is an essential element of the gospel or not. Now, what did you think? Is it essential? Can we do without it? I think we said that it is essential, but that theoretically God can do whatever he wants. But that's the means he chose Okay. We're meant to be a community of believers, the supreme ethic of the universe being love. Mm-hmm. God is. Mm-hmm. We're meant to love those who are in Christ. Okay, so how are you defining a church now? As a, just a community a, of believers, people. Person. Okay, community of believers, but do they need to be organized? I mean, are we a church when we go to Starbucks? Wouldn't that be organization? I think that... If well, I guess there's a, that's right. But is that, a, is that defined as a church, though? Could you define two, two or three believers at Starbucks as the church? So that's enough. I get with Christians every every you know Monday night, and we we have coffee together, and we share our spiritual journeys, and we got a church. And there's a book, many books that that advocate that kind of thing. You remember the Shack, Young's the Shack. You know, just I, Jesus. You know had quite a lot to say against the organized church in that book, didn't he? Jesus did, remember? Jesus really didn't like the church at all. That and politics, he says. If you don't have the body around you, though, it's hard to be aware of what Christianity really is. Mm. Because we have each other to help us learn and to walk. So now you're making a pragmatic, and I don't mean that negatively. Well, church is is essential in that that it's what it does is is the way we know what we know. In other words, there's a kind of practical. It really is essential because without it, who else? How else are we going to do blank, 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 and blank, or something like that? You know. Also, a support system. This is a support system. Yeah, it's a support system. We need that. But we could do that at Starbucks, couldn't I? Starbucks is a much more comfortable place than those pews up there. And I could do it when I want to do it. I don't need to do it on Sunday morning with everybody, do I? Could we just do it on Starbucks? You, me, and three or four other people? Small group it? Yeah. But doesn't an organized church keep the gospel in check as the gospel and not from... And what's unique about the church that is able to do that? Well, there's an organization... Um, a a history of reading the Bible that goes through 
you know, churches across time and place that um, distinguishes good doctrine from bad. So, so the church is the guardian of, of the faith, you're arguing, and it is because it is organized. So uh, let's, let's, let's organize a church right now. Why don't we do that? Y'all ready? Now, what, what, what would y'all like to do? What, 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 what do y'all want? What, no, 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 play with me here. But, I mean, okay, so uh, we're going to organize a church. You just said we needed something to be organized, and we need something where we come together. Now, how are we going to organize it? Is there any, any organization will do? The Bible says to organize it might be a good start. All right. So you you actually think the Bible? Oh, come on. You you don't really think the Bible, or you know, has a way uh, or tells us how to organize a church. It might. Well, what are those? Not a bad place. It might. Yeah. I mean, I thought I thought that you know, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, those are all sort of man-made stuffs. I thought. You mean there's an actual template or there's an actual choreography or there's a oh could we use that word you know a foundation upon which we're supposed to build the church that was given to us by who in other words do we believe and this is what we say in our confession in our you know the apostles creed i believe what in the one how many one there's not five or ten good there's one, keep that going, who knows that? True and apostolic church. I believe in one holy and apostolic church. Now, what does that mean? That's exactly what we want to talk about today. You know, is there really a, not many, but a, one holy Catholic church? And is that one holy Catholic church referencing something that's organized and visible? Or is it just spiritual? Well, but yes. The bulletin says the true Christian church of all times and places. And notice of all times and places. Tell me what kind of church that is. Is that a spiritual church or is that a visible church? Spiritual. If it's time and places, you got it. There's a code there that I put in there when I wrote that little asterisk because it's a hint that we're not talking about church undefined, unregulated, unorganized I'm going to make a thesis I'm going to say to give you a, a proposition and again we this is a very very limited handout it doesn't get into so much more that we could and I put a few other handouts in the in the uh, website for you to look at if you want to go a little deeper with some of this but um, but I'm going to give you the thesis that probably that I what I would suggest to you is that most of what people's problems are with the church is not that it's organized, but that it's not organized enough. That it too that that it is it is veered off of the very carefully prescribed organizational structure that Christ gave us vis-a-vis the apostles foundation such that as we veer off of that foundation, it becomes increasingly abusive or it becomes increasingly irrelevant and lacks power. In other words, there are true what we call means of grace. These things which God instituted as the means through which people are saved. Now, let me, 
Let me sort of uh, jump ahead, and, and if you want to turn the handout now, and I'm going to do it right now here. I think it's this handout. So let's read this. Someone read that quote up there by uh, Cyprian. This is, uh, this is a quote that John Calvin would quote all the time. Now this quote, here I'll show you my footnote by Cyprian, 5th century here. Let's see here where it is. There it is. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, 250 A.D. on a document that he called on the unity of the church. And this is this quote, and this quote is one of the most quoted of the Reformers. Um, and it comes all the way through history. The Catholic Church also would quote it, I'd say. I know they would. So someone wrote, quote this and see what you think about it. Can somebody read it? She is one mother, plentiful in the results of fruitfulness. From her womb we are born, by her milk we are nourished, and by her spirit we are animated. Whoever is separated from the church is separated from the promises to the church. Nor can he who forsakes the church of Christ attain to the rewards of Christ. He can no longer have God for his father, who has not the church for his mother. If anyone could escape who is outside the ark of Noah, then he may also escape, then he also may escape who shall be outside of the church. So that's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? I think I have some more good ones here. I might zip down and let you see some of them. Um, what do you all think of that quote? You want me to show it to you again? Instead of me go here and, and search things for me. This is a longer handout that you have in there too, and I was just going to pull something off of it. All right, I'm going to go back up to the quote because you aren't talking about it. Okay, there's a quote. What, what do you what do you see happening there? First of all, is this a quote? Does this quote suggest that the church is an essential element of the gospel? Do you see that here? Yes. Now, I want you to notice carefully what kind of an argument is here. In other words, what I mean is, is it is it essential in the way that any good best practices? Good, you know, is this a best practices version of the church's essential gospel, or do you see something a little bit deeper than that here? Saying this is one of the legs. If you don't have that leg, you don't have any of it. Okay. It is there? Yeah. Good. What, what, what's he saying? If you're separated from the church, you're separated from the promises to the church. What, what does that suggest about the church by its very nature? What's the very nature? This is the question that we're going to have to get at tonight. What is the church? That is her nature. I'm, not, I'm asking an ontological question if you want that big word. What's, what, what is the church by at, at, in terms of her nature? You know, if you were a scientist, you, you, would, you would ask that question, right? It's tech, what's the nature of a blank? What is it? And what and, and that's what we gotta ask the question. What do you believe the church is? Is it a is a is it a voluntary association of believers? If it is, this would not be true. Is it uh, a, an accumulation over two thousand years of best practices is how best to communicate the gospel in the world? Is it a human uh, entrepreneurial project? If so, this passage would not be true. It's a roadmap for living. 
Is it a roadmap? I'm going to even give it to that. Is it is it a roadmap? But isn't the scripture a roadmap? Yeah. All right, so we don't need the church. We got scripture, right? It's a beneficiary <laughs> of a contract with God. It's what? It's a beneficiary of a contract with God. Okay, explain that a little bit more for us. Well, what do you mean by that? Okay, so you see a real covenantal, there's that word. So it, so you've, you've introduced a very great concept. Is there a contract that God has made with humanity wherein if you are outside of his covenant community, which means now the moment you say covenant, there's vows, membership, there's those who are and aren't in it. Is there a contract wherein to be outside of the church is no longer to be a beneficiary of the promises given to the church. That's what this says. That's called, That's the church, and by her very nature, she is a covenant community. Now, when you say that, you're saying something like, hey, if you're a Graham, if you're, if you're my kids, uh, there is an implicit contract that that obliges me to you and you to me in a way that's unique to anybody else on earth. And I would say that about any parent-child relationship or any husband-wife relationship. There is a family, and it began with a vow, wherein now there is this obligatory, non-voluntary, from a moral point of view, relationship that's both explicit but also, I'd say, implicit. Or you could say the same in terms of your national, uh, your 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 civil relationship to a state. You know, being American, I am now entitled to. I have rights and privileges by contract with America, even as I have responsibilities by contract to America. So that's the church viewed as a covenantal community or covenant community. And we talk about that when we talk about our children as covenant children. So you're right. Now you're getting a little deeper. You're saying, covenantally speaking, it's essential. It's interesting in Esther. I don't know if y'all been following that sermon series very well, but um, it's written very carefully to suggest when Mordecai is uh, making his case to Esther that if she does not come out of the closet in solidarity with the covenant people of God, the Jews, then she will suffer the covenant relationship she has with the Persians. In other words, he makes this case that, look, if you don't do this, you will go down with the Persians when they go down. Because there's a, con- there's a covenant. It's not about blood. It's about covenant. And you and there's a long history of this. This even gets to the basis of the relationship with Jesus Christ, that those who are in solidarity with Christ enter a covenant with Christ, wherein his death now satisfies for our sins, etc. But outside of Christ, you don't. That's covenant. So you've introduced a really big concept. There's another way of thinking about it. Is there anything else that's by, uh, about the church and her nature? That by her very nature would 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 uh, support the thesis that the church is an essential element of the gospel. Can you think of anything else? There's a hint. There's a hint right there in front of you in this page. 
Yeah. I mean, does what does Paul, when we go from the Old Testament to the New, do we go from a context of temple to no temple? Does that sound right to you? Look at there. I'm not going to have the time to do all this. That's the, and that's let me, the difference between your father on the lake and mm-hmm. going to church is you don't find Christ on the lake. He doesn't promise to be on the Yeah, lake. that's good. Here's, here's a nice summary uh, by another uh, guy named Richard Hayes, Ecclesiology and Ethics. Paul dares to assert, he's talking here about Corinthians, that community is the place where God dwells. Now, what are we talking about here? That's, that's a temple term. That's a presence term. Covenant is something that you can, is a legal document. Temple is an efficacious enlivening presence of God kind of a a reality. Do you not know, he asked, that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural? To read this last sentence as though it spoke of the spirit dwelling in the body of the individual Christian would be to miss the force of Paul's audacious metaphor. The apostolically, and that word's very important, because it tells you that just calling yourself a temple isn't making you a temple. Can you imagine, think about the Old Testament, how this would have prepared you for for the New Testament. In the Old Testament, did God give a, I mean, come on, God was a little bit looser back then, wasn't he? He, He's not worried about the architecture of the temple, come on. It's not important how you organize this thing. It's not important. I mean, you know, worship where you want to worship as long as you worship, man, you know. Really? I mean, one of the great sins of Israel that Ezekiel executes as a executioner of the covenant is that Israel started worshiping on every high hill under any leafy hill, tree, quote unquote. That's a quote from Deuteronomy where God says to the Israel, when you go into the promised land, don't start worshiping on any high hill and under any leafy tree. What he was saying is, don't. It's not about convenience. It's about you got to go to the temple that is carefully, and in the case of the Old Testament typology, carefully designed so that every part of the design would preserve the truth about God and the truth about salvation. Every part, every single movement of worship in the temple, based on those those stations that was placed there were stations that spoke to the authenticity and truth of God and the authenticity and truth of a particular way of salvation, both of which would distinguish from the false gods and the false ways of salvation. So that tells you that, I mean, already you're thinking, so if, if we are the temple of God, how on earth, how would it be that God in the New Testament says, ah, do it any way you want to do it. And so that's why he puts that word apostolically. The, throughout church history, the church has always been defined, first and foremost, as always by necessary, necessarily it has to be visible because it's an assembly. And it's an assembly, that's where the word ecclesia, you know, to be called out into assembly. And, 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 by, and so it's got to be visible. And then two, it can't be organized just any other way. It's got to go right back to the foundation of the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone of that foundation. 
And that then sets up the, 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 the next question of, well, then what is that foundation? What are the components of it? What, what is the architectural design of this church? And it's true. It's no longer location geopolitically defined, but there's going to be some very specific marks. Again, that's what we got to talk about tonight. So this is very cool, and I'm going to give one more thing, and I'm going to get your question in a minute. I see you're waiting over there. Just how someone turned to me with me to Ephesians chapter uh, one, and let's go to twenty three. What just happened to my stuff? There it is. Uh, see, yeah, we're going to go right in here. I'm, uh, there's a whole thing here that y'all can read. I'm, I'm going looking at some, but here, right there, you see that little quote there. I've got the quote in front of you. One twenty two. Someone read that. Is the church an essential element of the gospel? If so, why? Read this, 122. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And 23? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. Now what is going on there? Let's spiritualize it. Come on, that's what we spiritualists do. Let's spiritualize that. You know, it's the spirit of it all. It makes you feel good and tingly inside. I'm filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a term right out of the Old Testament to define the symbol. I'll give it to you right up there. Verse 35 in Exodus, you see that? The Lord filled the tabernacle, the temple. That language is everywhere in the Old Testament as defining a place where God mediates presence. And then just to be clear that you know that's what Paul's talking about, how is that filling all in all fullness of Christ that's with his body, the church? How is it defined? Someone read 2.20 for me, through 22. It's right there. Can you read it? Kind of small in it. Somebody reading with it? Gary, you got it? Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Now you see that again? It's joined together. That word joining together literally means to organize. To, to, uh, is, it's, to, it's to organize a, a, an organization. It's to bring parts together. Um, and it's called a temple. And, uh, and it's the dwelling place of God. So here's the point. And then I'm going to pray. We're going to go back to our, our other handout. Here's the thesis. The church is an essential element of the gospel, ontologically and covenantally. Or, to say it another way, the church is an essential element of the gospel because apart from it, we do not have the body of Christ. And without the body of Christ, we do not have the fullness of Christ who fills all in all, according to Paul. And therefore, as Cyprian would say, it began. Now read this. I'm going to read it one more time and think about what we just did. To put it in other words, before I read this one more time, think of it this way. Has there ever been a time in all of redemptive history where there was not a covenantal aspect to our salvation was there ever a time when there was was salvation outside of a covenant relationship with god the answer would have to be no 
And you can read this handout later and see that argument. And then I'm going to ask you another question. Has there ever been a time in all of redemptive history where there's been salvation without God's immediate or mediated presence? Think of Moses. God wants Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt into salvation, right? Do you remember his problem? He had a problem. There was two parts of this problem that get you to him. Do you remember what it was, anybody? Go ahead. Well, his, there was a problem with circumcision that came after the bigger problem. Because the circumcision is how you, you entered into the covenant. So you're, you're getting there. He wasn't circ- his son wasn't circumcised. What's the next one? What's underneath that? Do you remember this little argument that he had with God? There's, it's, it's a classic argument. And it's recorded again in, in, in Romans where, where at the end of the day he's going to say, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and grace on the end. What, do you remember that argument? I'm thinking of another one. Then. Well, what is yours? Uh, was that he was arguing with God that he didn't have the ability. All right. He didn't have the ability. That's good to know because we believe, we, we'd say, man, you don't have the ability. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. So let's just don't rely on Moses. Let's rely on God. That's good. No, this big issue was that there's there's these two issues. So when God asked Moses to to take lead the people into uh, into salvation, he said, uh, "Well, I'm not going to do it unless you go with us." Remember that? Unless you go with us. There was there was already in redemptive history the impossibility of victory and salvation if God wasn't in the midst of them. Remember what happened in in, in Genesis when they fell. They were excommunicated from the presence of God. So there was a presence problem. If you don't go with us, there's no power. Think about that. There's no power. I'm going to use two Ps in a minute. Power. Without the presence of God, there's no power. And so God says, I'll go with you. <laughs> you think think Moses would be happy, wouldn't you? And Moses scratches his head. You could almost see this thing going on here. And he goes, hold on here. The previous chapter, you just told me that we're a stiff-necked and rebellious people and that you can't dwell with us. I don't, want you, I don't know if I want you to go with us, Lord, because if you go with us, you're going to destroy us. And that's when God quoted the covenant. And he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? Who swore an oath on behalf of the people to take upon himself the conditions of the covenant and to satisfy them so that the people of God could by faith and repentance and faith in that covenant with Abraham be restored to God? Well, he basically uh, alludes to the same thing. He says, oh, you got good news here. I can go with you and be present in your midst, even though you're a stiff-necked and rebellious people, because there is a forensic contract I've made with you, received by grace through faith alone, wherein I won't destroy you. And so there's never been a time in all of redemptive history where God's people were saved apart from both a gospel paradigm, P, and a gospel power, P. And that's temple and covenant. And that's what's behind. Now, re- listen to this language one more time, and you begin to see. And this was every bit of this was behind Cyprian's comment. This was all packed in. And if you're sitting here going, wow, this is blowing my mind. I've never heard this before. That shows you how unorthodox and far away we've come, even those of us who call ourselves evangelicals, that we've lost this idea of salvation. So here it is again. She, the church, is one mother, 
plentiful and the results of fruitfulness. Now I know why. God's presence is there. There ain't no way there's not going to be fruitfulness without God, with, with God's presence sitting there. From her womb we are born. That is a salvific description. That is a powerful, life-giving description. That's not a by influence we're born. That means born, dead, alive. That's really efficacious-sounding language to me. By her milk, we are nourished. Now, not only are we born in the the church without the church, we wouldn't have a womb, which means we don't exist. But now without the church, even if we existed, we would die. Except the church is our milk. And therefore, by her spirit, did you see this word? We are animated. There is absolutely no stronger language that you could use to suggest that the church is an essential element of the gospel. And then he gives you the repercussions of that audacious statement. Whoever is separated from the church, therefore, is separated from the promises to the church. Nor can he who forsakes the church of Christ attain to the rewards of the church, Christ. He can no longer have God for his father who is not the church for his mother. If anyone could separate, escape from outside the ark of the Noah, see, that's an old covenant church right there. It's visible. It's, it's got the covenant. It's got the presence hovering over it. And it's, it's God. In the midst of them. May also, they would not be able to escape the church. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, already a robust conversation. Help us to understand what we're reading here and thinking about. And forgive us, Lord, as a church. We, in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, have many times long ago even have lost uh, the doctrine and the trust in the church of Jesus Christ as an, as, a, as an element of faith that we should even be able to confess our faith in the church, Lord, a church that you so carefully and directly founded and, and orchestrated and instituted by your divine covenant. So, Lord, help us to know your presence and to appreciate it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's turn to the, uh, the actual handout. We've before I had a question. Yeah, yeah, please, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you. Thank um, you. How, where did you come up with the term mother? Yeah. Where is any of the biblical background? The biblical background, yep, yep, the biblical background would go back to Eve. Um, Eve is the mother of God, the mother of the seed. And so it go, and so wherever you wherever you have so Mariology is derived from Eveology. And Eve is the first church. She is the church. If you think about it, she is, if Adam, and then, of course, he fails, and now the, the seed, but the idea is that it, it goes all the way back to the idea and the lineage of the motherhood. And that's why in the Jewish faith, how is lineage traced? Anybody know? By the mother. By the mother. So that's where it gets from. Was that just a Freudian something? Well, I, I say that with quotes. Again, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to get into the controversy of the of the first century or, or third, fifth, fourth century, but um, but yeah, the the sense of Jesus Christ being the seed of, of of the you know that line of out of the maternal presence of of Eve and woman after her comes the lineage of Christ. That's what I mean by that. I, I didn't mean to. I'm not going to get into the other aspect of that argument. No, I, I'm just more trying to get. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. 
So let's look at, um, you know, I just realized I did not. Um, so if you're looking at this handout now, and you can have your own if it's helpful, um, we need to go to our confession of faith. And I just realized I didn't quote it here. Does anybody have it? Um, could you look at uh, Westminster 25? And we need to read it. I'm sorry I don't have a picture of it here. Let me see if I can get it real quick because we need to kind of go to it. Give me two seconds and I'll, I'll get it up for you. Probably be easier this way. I did something the other day. Where is that baby? That's not right. Where would it go? No, I'm going to go to that. I did something the other day. I downloaded something on my iPhone. I was doing a whole new engine, and it just messed up my Chrome. So I'm going to go back to my Safari where I know it's. I can find what I'm looking for. All righty. Which one was it here? It's this one. Okay. All right, there we go, and we'll try to make it as big for you as I can. It's not very big, is it? Let's see here. Well, okay, this will be as much as I can do it for now. Let's read a couple of passages here. Um, can y'all read out? Can y'all see that? It's about as big as I can get it. Someone read number one, chapter 25. Now, what do you notice about this Catholic universal church, which is invisible? Is it invisible in the sense that it's ungathered? Notice. It's gathered. So here's a better way to, I think a lot of times, if you match this with sort of the Eastern spirituality, which is exactly what's going on these days, even in that merge, is you would think unorganized or ungathered, if you will. It's just people who exist out there that are Christians all together make the universal church. That is not the way the Reformers define the invisible church. And here's a great example of it from 350 years ago. It's a gathered church. So what makes it invisible? What does he mean by invisible? It's not specific to a particular time. Okay. It's, it's, that's part of it. Can you think of anything else that that would say? I know this is a, this is a very hard phrase for us to understand today if we weren't in the day of, of the Reformers. It's the church that we can't discern infallibly. We can't discern who is really in it versus who is really not in it. It's invisible to us. So another way to see it is this is a distinction, the church as God sees the church. So when God looks upon CPC, my hope and prayer is that every member of this church in good standing is a member of the one holy Catholic church. But ultimately, we can see that the church is fallible, that we may well have not made a, 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 a we may have made a wrong, we might well have made a wrong judgment in, in entering or demitting someone from the church. It's the fallible church is what we're saying in the sense that we people can't see the true and perfect church. 
That's the point. This was a this was a statement made against the Roman infallibility doctrine right here. So they made a distinction between the church as God sees it, but we don't, called invisible. And then notice the next one. And to prove it, not only do you have the gathered language in there and all that, but notice the second one. Now the visible church. Now we're talking about the church that we see. That we see. Because it's visible to us. Now what does it say there? Somebody read it. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Wow. Did you read that? Now notice that the difference, if you had this mindset that the, the visible and invisible church, the distinction is, well, one's not Catholic, one is Catholic. One's not universal, one is universal. You got that wrong. That is not orthodoxy. That's never been believed in the history of the church. You got it right there. They're both Catholic. They're both universal. One is invisible, so it's distinguishing the fact that the church as it really is the church, only God can see that that infallibly. And therefore, it's a church, there's a church without error. So for instance, if one more explanation. I am sure, well, I have no idea where, no, I'm playing. I'm sure that CPC um, is wrong about some things. I'm pretty confident of that because I believe in original sin and I got sin in my life and I got sin in this session's life and we got sin in everybody who's sitting in this room's life. I am sure there's some doctrine, some thought, something, somewhere that we got wrong. And, and where I believe that we've gotten it wrong, I've taken exception to our confession, which is only you know a minor area right now. Okay, so we're the church infallible. And therefore, there's the church as God sees it that's infallible. But only God sees it. It's invisible to us. I don't, we don't have, I don't see perfectly the right doctrines, the right government, the right everything about it. But this other church, even though it's fallible, the, the church that we see, the one that we choose to go to on Sunday, in other words, the church that I'm leading right now in this, this seminar, that visible church is also Catholic Universal. It's also the church that's not defined by a nation. So it, it is Catholic in that sense of every time and every place, back to that statement that you, you quoted on our bulletin. And it consists of all those who profess faith in Christ. Now, only God knows if it's a true profession of faith or not. Right? It's all those who profess faith, who have a credible profession of faith, is the way we say it. And their children, that's a very important observation, why we give children the covenant sign. They're members of the church. And is the listen to this, and it is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. I.e., if you're outside the say church, the one that you can go to on Sunday, you're not a Christian. Ordinarily. What is that ordinarily there for? And you mentioned that, I think, Trevor. Or somebody, or did you mention? I forgot somebody did. What, why ordinary? It's uh, God can is big enough to do to save someone 
if I'm hearing the gospel with a friend who's not an atheist on his death, but there's no church around me, no pastor, and I share the gospel, it's possible that God's big enough to That's right. That. We're going to acknowledge that ultimately... The invisible church is such that God could sustain someone outside the church, but it's highly unlikely. (laughs) I mean, this is something I'm communicating to my kids. You know, um, I mean, I think they would tell you if it's between having a Bible and going to church, get rid of your Bible and go to church. I've said those very words. That quote was amazing about the, the... The nurturing nature of the, the mother, and yep. you need it. You got to have it. Yeah. It's the milk. It it's sense. life. Yeah. It's life. And why is it life? Because of its ontology. That's a very important word. That's it's the nature of the church. The church is the mediatorial body of Christ. Can you have salvation apart from Christ? No. So how do you have Christ? Where is He? Where do I get to connect, commune with Him? It's not just some invisible wah-wah. I mean, that's, that's, that's an idol. It's got to be the church. And then the minute you say that, you say, well, 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 how is this, if it's that big of a deal, how do we define the church? See, if you start taking that seriously, all of a sudden, all these doctrines that you put aside as, oh, those are the non-essential things, they just became very essential. How do we govern ourselves so that Christ is the true king of this church? How, what do we do when we meet? And what do we do in worship to make sure that it's, it's truly worshiping the one and true God? And it's a worship that is informed by the one and true gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? What are the means of grace? What are the, sacri- what are the rituals we do here? Do we just do any ritual? Or do these rituals need to come directly from Jesus Christ upon that foundation that the apostles, that he gave the power of, the, uh, of foundation building to the apostles? You know, what do we believe? What do we believe? It's, it's the both end, right? the, the foundation of Christ, the foundation of the apostle of Christ, the cornerstone. What do we believe? That's the prophet. So Christ now is our prophet, priest, and king, and there are institutionalized into an organization we call the church, and that's called, historically, three marks of the church. The church consists of an apostolic government, an apostolic Worship, as in the elements of those worships prescribed by Christ, and an apostolic doctrine of the gospel. You take those three things out, and I would add one more, by the way, and a church is characterized by the mark of its sentness. It is a missional church. Four marks, all gospel-centered, which makes it, we put that in there five, because that defines the content of all four of those other marks. So five marks. Gospel-centered, missional, prophet-confessional, as in a believing church, based on the apostles. Sacramental, a worshiping church, based on the foundation of the apostles. And governing, governing church, shepherded church, if you will, based on the governing principles and, and qualifications that are sitting on the foundation. See what's going on there? Anybody else? And then I'll get back to you. You want to say something first? So I guess... By the way, I'll read that in a minute in the conversation. Yeah, good. Speaking about the, the fallibility, so the comment you said about five or six minutes ago about the fallibility of CPC, when you're having conversations with individuals who, uh, many conversations that uh, you agree with a lot of things over scripture, but in relationship to the church itself, mm-hmm. that specific discussion about where a church can meet, 
church can be in your home, church can be at Starbucks, mm-hmm. church can be wherever. Mm-hmm. And them knowing that we're fallible, how do you, where do you start in being able to yeah. be, have a conversation with that individual? Because they, well, good point. they can rationally say, that's right. It's just your imagined opinion. That, that's your opinion. You could be fouled. Yeah, yeah. And I will agree with that. I'll agree. Yeah, we could be wrong. Yeah. But but I'm going to tell them, do you believe that God, that the Bible is wrong? Do you believe? If I can get them the most important doctrine always to start with, which is why our confessions start with it, is the doctrine of Scripture. Do you believe that God has revealed himself to us and his will for our salvation? If you believe that, that that's found in the Bible... Now we're going to, if we have the Bible as our authority, I'm going to say, you're right. No one can read it perfectly, but it's nonsensical to me to think that God gave a book for the purpose of revealing himself so that it could remain a secret to us. So it's there and it's plain enough to get to the, to the essence of the church by it. And it is. While I will disagree with, say, the church down the street, my brothers and sisters that are Baptist, or my brothers and sisters that are Methodist, whatever they are, we have some differing opinions about the form of government, for instance. Are the marks of the church in that church over there? Is there a government, at least in, in essence, derived from the apostles? Is there a gospel that is, in essence, derived? So at what point does something become so off-kilter that it actually ceases to be the church. That's another whole argument that we'd have to make, and, and, and we'd I'd go on that in a minute. But the point is, to answer your question, you ready to roll up your swings, Billy Bob? Let's go. Let's go get to the Scriptures. Let's read it from cover to cover, and let's find those trajectories where you can say there's never been a time in all redemptive history where this, where God's salvation was apart from this. Mark, vis-a-vis the definition of the temple church. And I will argue to you there's never been a time when the church was not prophetic, priestly, or kingly, or where there was not a doctrine of the, there was not a gospel doctrine, there was not a gospel worship, and there was not a gospel government. And we can get to those points, and there's a ton of instruction about each of those things, those marks. There's a ton of it in Scripture. It's amazing to me we've not we've not noticed it, and it shows you how biased our non-organizational, post-enlightenment, individualistic, populist, I'll throw all the words out, we are blinded. When 2,000 years of history, it would have been inconceivable. Let me give you an illustration that might help you with this. When we do the Lord's Supper today, have y'all noticed how we articulate those who should and should not participate? Anybody... You've heard it every week, some of you, for years. Anybody know what we say? Unite yourself to a gospel-believing church. Mm-hmm. Part two. Part one. You must, prof- you must profess faith. You must have a credible profession of faith. So many words I'll say that you've put your hope and faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, i.e., the covenant. You have, you have, you have vowed. That's a vow the vow of a profession of faith. That's why profession of faith is so important. You see it in Romans. Lest you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Interesting. So there is a time where there is a covenant or a vow taken, and those five, uh, those, those five vows that you take here are just examples of, you can say it many other ways, of what we call a covenantal 
forming or initiating a covenant relationship with Christ. That's one. And then I say, and a member in good standing of some gospel-leading church, i.e., you you have joined a church somewhere. Now, we say that, and today that is one of the most, um, in our spirituality, Eastern mystic version of Christianity that's all so popular, that would probably be one of the most offensive things that we say over the years, that people go, whoa, did I hear that right? It's so offensive that most people don't, I've noticed so many people will come, and they hear it, but they don't really hear it, and they walk up anyway, and I know darn well they're not a member of a church anywhere. Now, the government of the church is is regulated to not be temporal. If y'all are in our shepherd leader training, you'll learn all that stuff, which means I will never take it away from them. That's not my job. My job is to declare. And then the blood's on your hands, so to speak. It's your responsibility to judge in, in that regard. But that's, that's an example. Now, the reason I give you that example is I want you to think about this for a minute. When, when was it? We call what we do up here, we call close communion. Historically, that's called close community communion. That was the broadest way you could be inclusive. Why? Because we don't require that before you come to this table that you meet with our session and be admitted to this particular table by this particular session before you can participate in this meal. That was the predominant way, even up until the 19th century, for churches to fence the table. It would have said, if you wish to participate in the table, some of the Anglican churches still do this, I'm pretty sure, right? Um, I know the ones in Atlanta does, the cathedral there where I used to go. There would be a, a lull between the, the rest of the service and the communion, at which time I would have an opportunity to go up and there would be someone there who I would profess faith in Christ to and I would be admitted to that table. And this is a big mainstream cathedral of St. Philip's there in Atlanta, Georgia following that tradition. That's called close communion. We practice open communion. Ours is open communion. And historically, that was the more inclusive approach to declare, as long as you're a member in good standing of some and any gospel-leaving church, I, you have been examined, you have, you've brought yourself under the kingship of Christ vis-a-vis the mediatorial presence of Christ's kingship, Governed by the church, apostolic foundation. Come on, we'll, we'll admit you. Now, what is an open communion has become very parochial and narrow sounding in a world that's so democratic. And it was unheard of. I'm not exaggerating, unheard of. Do you remember the old Puritans? They had to have, to have tokens. You remember all that stuff? Do you remember your church history and you would be given tokens by which you would have to show your token? in order to participate in the, in the communion? All right. So that's, that's whoever asked that question. That's, that's what we need to do. We need to go and define the church by the Bible and practice it, but do it humbly because we are fallible. But being fallible, just because I don't know everything there is to know about a tree, doesn't mean that I don't know enough about a tree not to run into it. Just because I don't know everything there is to know about a church, and I'm sure I got something wrong about a church, doesn't mean I can't practice the church. And that's another thing I'd say to that person. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, I think, too, though, <coughs> there is uh, being a little, what's the word, cautious of being like in the box when you mentioned about. About what? Being too much in the box. Um, about how 
especially your son, about going to church versus having the Bible. Mm-hmm. Because I've heard stories of the mission of missionaries getting killed, and then the person who helped lead some of that started reading the Bible. Well, you're taking me too literally. I'm making it more of a point. You know, I'd like to have them both, honestly. Yeah, because I mean, the whole but no, but if I if he had to choose, if he if someone said to my son over there in the Middle East or something, I'll give you a choice. You can either have a Bible or you can go to a gospel believing church every Sunday. Hands down, no debate about it. Turn in your Bible, go to church. Why? Because for sixteen hundred years, and all the years prior to that, prior to Christ in the Old Testament, not one individual carried around a Bible. You didn't need a Bible because you had the Bible coming to you by the authorized. And to me, in some ways, there's at least we've got to acknowledge that there may be some benefit to not reading it individualistically all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me. I'd like for you to read your Bible every day. But what I'm saying is, is that when you start reading it without the advantage of reading it communally, you are now going to read it and most likely get a lot of heresy out of it. Apart from a communal reading of the Bible, we call that confessionalism, we are prone to our all of our idiosyncratic, sinful ways. And we will probably read it very sinfully, or at least blindly in many ways. So I, that's why I say there's there's a detrimental effect to this everybody's their own you know, Luther said this in the Reformation. He said, look, the only thing worse than a pope is a million popes. And that's what he was afraid of when the, when the Bible was beginning to become democratized through the Gutenberg, even though that was premature. Yeah. In this second uh, chapter here, it says that professed the true religion. Mm-hmm. And I know... That's I, what I'd call a credible profession of faith, yeah. I know a number of churches and a number of clergy mm. that would say they profess the true religion, mm-hmm. that can talk a good game, mm-hmm. but that's not what they teach. Mm-hmm. They teach an incomplete gospel, they mm-hmm. teach a work gospel. And what we would say by this very humble admission of our confession is only God knows for sure. But, I, you know what I'm saying? So we can't, while we would need to make judgments about what we believe is the true and false faith to admit people into this particular church, I'm going to leave it to God. If, if they, so the, I, we probably don't want to get off on this too much because we, we're not here, we haven't done, but, but to put it bluntly, we will, gut, we, will, we will define a church by its professed confession. So give me this church's confession of faith. And and we don't judge the church by any one administration of that church at any one time. You follow what I'm saying? As long as this church corporately has is, is confessed this belief about the the gospel and the church, we don't, you know, we're not going to, you see what I'm saying? So we might judge a church to be a true church. Let's say, and where this comes out, by the way, in polity, is when someone comes to our church and we're asking the question, have you been baptized? And if they say yes... And I say, well, tell me how that happened. Well, we were baptized in the river. Uh, my best friend, um, who was a Christian, baptized me. And we're going to argue, well, that's not a church. It doesn't have the five marks. 
but then we may come, he may come from a very strong, but maybe you could say liberal or whatever, what we would call an unorthodox practicing church, but whose church still has the five marks in its, in its, in, in terms of its confession, in terms of its beliefs. It just may be highly irregular in some places. It may be, uh, tainted in sin and it may be an unhealthy church, you could even say. It might be a sick church in our humble estimation, but we can still say you were baptized and therefore we're not going to have to rebaptize you. Now, we're not, that's not the same as saying we would recommend that church for you to go that's to. That's what I'm more concerned yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we would never, we would say, we, were, we try to teach people what a hot health, what we believe from Scripture is a healthy church. And when you leave this church, we're going to help, help you find one like that. That's a, a, a very critical reason. Sure. People have lost faith. Yeah, in the right. Because think about it. To the degree that you compromise any of those five marks, you've compromised his power, <laughs> yeah. and you've compromised the grace of the gospel. The covenant has been compromised, and the temple has been compromised. If you believe the church, by her nature, is a covenant and a temple community, then any time you take away from or add to... Those things, you have compromised the power and the the truth, not just the truth, but also the power of the church. Okay, we got to move on real quick. Uh, number three, this is the next point. Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God. That's very important. That's called juro divino ecclesiology. That's a Latin term for by divine law, we have what is our ministry and what is it not? What are our oracles or teachings? What is it not? What is our ordinances? That means our, our institutions of, of ritual and our institutions of what we call means of grace. And what are they not? And this statement says these were all prescribed by God. It's not something we devise creatively. The last thing you want our session to be is creative. No creativity here. All we do is declare what God has created. That's all we can do. Now, um, I'm going to go, and then you'll notice, to your point number four, sometimes this Catholic church is more and less visible. That means it's more readily seen than others. And particular churches which are members thereof are more or less pure. This is a really beautiful, gracious statement here. According as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, public worship performed. Did you see that? There's the three marks again. More or less purely in them. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, there's mixture, there can be error, uh, but they, there is a point when a so-called church can be no church at all. That's the next point, number five. And then the key thing here is that there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course this comes out of the Reformation, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. We can't use that term. Preston Graham or anybody is not the head of the church. Only Jesus Christ can be had. Turn to your, um, so there's our confession. Turn now to your thing. We're going to zip through it a couple more points. How much time is it? Okay, we got, don't we have till 8.30? Yeah. So let's just look at that. Um, I'm going to jump down here. Do you see where I'm at? Um, Think we're going to get into the uh, sacraments later, but I want to try to play off a little bit on how important this idea of temple is when we think of the doctrine of the church. And to do that, look at John. 
Um, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Stated again, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. I mean, what does it mean to eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood? Whatever's happening there, it's a life-giving event. So let's just begin with that concept. It makes nonsense otherwise. And so therein, the argument that will become focused on the sacramental nature of the church, well, is it just we eat it in a memorial sense? We just remember it eating? Do we eat it in the sense that the blood, the, the, the bread and the body actually become the organic substance of Jesus Christ somehow through the digestion process of eating it? It's a miracle, a physical, organic miracle. Or is it that we eat it spiritually, as in by the Holy Spirit and the mystical communion between Christ and the Spirit, that when the, Christ, when the Spirit comes, qua John 13, 14, and 15, I am in the midst of you in the mystery of the union of the Trinity. So that to partake of Christ really, but the key there is you're still really partaking, but it's just not an organic partaking. It doesn't, the molecules don't change. Isn't that part of the mystery? And that is part of the mystery of the Trinity, first of all, and then back to us. So notice uh, this language. Um, I'm not going to go through this too much, but think of 1 Corinthians then, that how this logic is revealed here. Can someone read that enough to read it so I don't have to talk so much? I'm going to get it over to you. Uh, a little too small. There we go. Uh, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not it is it, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ. The bread the, the bread that we break is it not a sharing in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. How is the church defined? It's one church, even if it's meeting in different places at different times by virtue of its one koinonia, sharing. The word literally means to participate. I mean, it would make nonsense of this word, koinonia, to to say, in some sense, we're not partaking of it. That we're not actually sharing it. You know, Peter describes it that we might um, partake of the divine nature. That's an amazing word. Out of that, the Eastern Church, as you know, develops the doctrine of divinization or, you know, or theosis. And it depends on what you mean by that. Because we would say, yes, there is a divinization. If you mean, it doesn't mean that we become divine in any sense. We don't partake in the sense that we become divine. But you can say that when you partake of the church, listen to this, I'm going to give you Christology, applied ecclesiology here. When we partake of the church, Christ is in the midst of us, distinctly Christ, but never separate from us Christ. So distinct but not separate. Think about Chalcedon. In the Christology debates, they, just, they came to the orthodox position where they said in so many words that Christ's divinity is distinct but never separate from his humanity. In the same sense, that in the ascension, applied to the ascension ministry, Christ now by his spirit is always distinct 
So when we say the body of Christ, we don't mean that we are Christ in that sense. But never separate. We can say that we are sharing Christ, in Christ. That in Christ language, have you ever noticed how often that's, that's mentioned in Scripture? That is one of the most common ways for Paul to describe what does it mean for you to be a Christian. And he doesn't say that you just professing Christ is not the predominant way that he talks about it, as much as that's part of it. It's you are in Christ. That word genitive there is huge. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So there's something about the church that's much deeper than we have tempted in our post-enlightenment ways to think about it. Um, I'm gonna. There's a whole long summary here, and uh, that I wrote, and you know it's great. You got to read it. No, it, um, I'm not gonna read it because it's just a lot there. You can go back and read it. Um, so here, here's the. We've already read 25. Let me just read a few other quotes for you. Here's John Calvin. Beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. The paternal favor of God and the special evidence of spiritual life are confined to His peculiar people. And hence, the abandonment of the church is always fatal. This is our reformation. I mean, a lot of people think of John Calvin and the reformers. Oh, they're, they're getting away from all that sacerdotal Roman Catholic stuff, right? And we go right over to the cliff and jump. No. They believed, as you'll see next week when we talk about sacramentology, Paul's going to say the problem with the Roman Catholic church is they're not sacramental enough. They've brought this little mediator of Rome in between me and Jesus, and therefore we have a we're a little distance from Jesus through the Catholic Church. I want to be right in there, man. I want to eat Jesus, and I don't want to have to eat a Roman a, a, a Roman culture to do it. I don't want to have to transform form my identity as a say a Greek to become a Hebrew to do it. That's the old argument. That was what Paul was arguing. Do you have to become a Hebrew before you can become a Christian in the New Testament? That's what the whole circumcision thing was all about. That you don't have to convert. And so the idea here is, another way to put it is, where is the epicenter of the kingdom of God? Anybody want to guess? Rome? Sorry. Canterbury? Alexandria? New Haven? Atlanta, Georgia? PCA? Is that where it is? Where the part, part Where Presbyterians really will come down is no. There is no earthly epicenter. And that was derived from what Calvin will say next week, this idea that you don't, we don't need, to, we should not be required to convert into the vernacular or culture of any one place on earth in order to fully experience Christ. Christ incarnates himself vis-a-vis the body of Christ into any context whatsoever. And that's therefore the epicenter is our heavenly center. It's all heaven, where the throne where Christ is seated. That's the epicenter of the kingdom of God, of which there are these many multi-form churches all over the earth that are united to that one head. And that's the picture. And that's kind of what's going on here. Listen, this this is another one. Stuart Robinson. No diligent reader of the scriptures can fail to notice that they set forth as an essential and fundamental fact of the scheme of redemption by Christ crucified the organization of a visible society of men, a community under constitution, laws, and ordinances, a church of God, a kingdom of heaven, in the world, although not of this world. 
And there's that. We're in the world in forms, but we're united to a kingdom not of this world in heaven. And, um, and this visible organization is not less clearly distinguished from the mystical body of Christ, the elect of God, the invisible church, known only to God. See that? Infallible to us, or fallible to us, but inv- infallible to God. Then are the invis- invisible movements of the spirit, whereby souls are made members of the mystical body, distinguished from the external means of salvation. The Sabbath, the word, sacraments, prayer, whereby the spirit communicates. Now, that's a bigger word than just talks. That means that we participate. To the souls of men, the benefits of salvation. So prominent indeed is this fact that the Bible is no mere, not more a book of theology, technically so-called, than a book of ecclesiastical history. You just can't separate it. The, you could just say, well, what is the Bible? Well, you would want to say it's a history of salvation. You could just as well say it's the history of the church. So here's a thesis for you. Do you all know the word soteriology? Anybody know that big word? That, that's, that's the word for, for salvation, the study of salvation. Anybody know the word ecclesiology? That's the word, the study of the church. What's happening here is now ecclesiology is no longer a kind of peripheral topic in our theology class. That's why we're studying it. If you believe the church, what the Bible says about the church, to study the doctrine of the church is to study our salvation. Now, we'll remember, what is the church? It's the mystical or mediatorial body of Christ, both understood in its fallible sense, the church as we see it, and the infallible sense, the God as God sees it. Therefore, what we would say is the church is Christ, distinct, but never separate. That's putting all this together. Some hefty thoughts here. Um, we're gratefully, I think we're going to have a little time to talk. But um, let's see here. Oh, here's this great quote from Calvin that I quoted earlier: "The ex- no extent of space interferes with the boundless energy of the Spirit, which transfuses life into us from the flesh of Christ." That's he's talking about what happens when we eat communion in the church. Um, let's see here. Let me just stop there for a minute and see if there's anything you want to talk about in terms of questions. There's some more stuff here, but uh, but some more questions here. But what do, what do y'all think of this? This is a good moment to get on the balcony at least for five minutes and just kind of go, whoa, what just happened here? What just happened? What are y'all thinking about? Well, I see such truth in it and what bothers me is coming from a denomination and seeing other mainline churches that have had the creeds, mm-hmm. looking at scripture and thinking that mm-hmm. Bible only contains the word of God, that it is not the word of God. Mm-hmm. That really grieves me. Mm-hmm. They've gotten when they... Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a grieving thing to see any church go away from all of this, yeah. And, and it's not something that's, that's just hit one denomination, is it? <laughs> I mean, and there are churches who really have had yeah. Yeah, they have it. They, it's like Paul said to the Jews, man, you got it. You got all these oracles. You got all this. You have all this history. Don't lose it. But it's. And they've allowed the world to. It's, it's very subtly. And there are many. Why do we do that? Why would the church lose this stuff? I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, I mean, we're sitting here in a class studying ecclesiology right now. It's one of the, uh, you know, we have, what, 33 articles of faith. 
just like the Nicene Creed does, just like the, uh, not 33, but the Nicene has this. In other words, every Orthodox creed will have, I believe in the one holy Catholic Church statement. And yet, most modern Christians, like, I don't know if you know this story, but when I became a Christian, mostly through Young Life, vis-a-vis my friend Foley Beach, as a big, you know, we played football together, same age, um, and uh, but mostly through, for years, years, all the way through college, I came to Christ my freshman year in college, all the way through college and then even some, I, uh, four years afterwards even, Anytime I'd recite the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed in church, I would stop when we got to that point. I believe in the one holy Catholic church. That, to me, was just heretical. That's the problem with religion, is we, 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 for, that we don't just worship Jesus. It, it gets, this church gets into that stuff. And Yeah, it might be good. It might be a good organization here, and it might do some good things. Probably helpful for me to go, but I couldn't say that as a matter of faith, that I believe in it as an article of faith for salvation. Couldn't say it. Now I can. I'll be it with some caveats and questions, yeah. So what happens here? What's going on? I mean, think about what this means. So is it a sen- if this is true, is it essential in order for you to have the fullness of Christ in your life to join a gospel-believing church? Yeah. Can I look to you and say, are you a member of church? No. Then you don't have the full Christ. You don't have total Christ. What would you say that then you haven't professed Christ? Well, you might have professed it to your buddy, but I'm saying you're not partaking of the temple, therefore you don't have the full presence of Christ in your life. I'd say you're missing something, according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. You're missing something. You don't have the fullness. I'm not saying you're not justified. You may be justified, potentially. But you don't have the full presence and power of Christ in your life if you don't have if you're not a part of in submission to the lordship of Christ vis-a-vis his government remember prophet priest king those things being mediated to us through the by the way a passage you would turn to which I haven't even turned you to which is ridiculous that I have it is Matthew 16 you know Peter upon this rock I will build my church you know against which the gates of hell will not prevail have you noticed that passage I used to hate that passage. I know those in the shepherd leader traps heard me talk about this. I used to take that passage to mean that against which the gates of hell shall not prevail as in the sense that um, Satan is, is not, if I'm in the church, I'm protected from Satan. That's not what it says. Not, not exactly. Against which the gates of hell will not prevail. No, what it's saying is Satan won't be protected from the church. The Satan is now in fortress. And the gates that try to protect Satan from God are brought down. And that's the picture you get in Revelations, where the church militant overcomes and victorious over Satan. But the key there is it goes on, it says, therefore you bind on, he talks about this binding and loosing. Therefore, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose on heaven. What is going on there? Except it is attributing to the church the power of opening and closing the kingdom of God on earth. And it's got to be happening on earth, visible, on earth as it is in heaven. So if I believe this, yeah. Do I need to be a member? Do I need to join a church? In order to be a, a Christian, you bet. 
How do you get saved? Hold on, I'm going to play with this a little bit. So now, I came through a tradition. It wasn't a tradition. It was never a formed tradition. You don't find it in the Bible, in the, even in the history of church. But I came through a spirituality that says, hey, you know, you want to become a Christian? Let's play a sinner's prayer right now. All right, you're a Christian. Not according to Augustine. When he, quote, believed on Christ in the garden as his ethical, moral, whatever you want to call it, conversion from Manichaeism and all that, he wasn't a Christian until he was baptized. According to, to why? Now, it's not that he didn't agree with Jesus and all the doctrines of the faith and assent to them. He had not yet joined himself and partaken of Christ. He was missing something. I've got to tell you this one more story. In this church, when we were, we were early years, somebody might know a guy named Bim Lau. He knows I tell the story all the time. He's now in Singapore, a reputable, wonderful man of God. He was here as a student at Yale, came to Christ, and, um, and you know, was professing faith in Christ. And we were, this was back when we had an office over in Brownstone over there. We didn't have buildings and all this stuff. And, um, and he walks into my office one day, literally filled with tears. And he had just gotten off the phone with his parents. He said, Pastor, can we talk? And I said, sure, Ben, what's wrong? And he says, you know, I've been reading the Bible, and, and uh, everywhere it just talks about getting baptized. And so I, I talked to my parents. I said, you know, I, I became a Christian several years ago, and they know that, and they're all affirming of that. Uh, they're, they're sort of a Buddhist Taoist spirituality, his parents. And, I, and so I said, you know, I think I need to be baptized. And they prohibited it. And so I started to argue with them about it, and they said, look, no, you can't do this. If you get baptized, then you've converted to another divine presence. You've converted over to another. It's different. You can, you can follow Jesus all you want. You can believe his teachings because his teachings are very consistent with many of our Buddhist teachings, but you cannot be baptized, or we will have to actually excommunicate you. I don't know if they use that term. From our, we'll have to have a ritual that loses you to our, to our divine presence lest we would bring condemnation on our family. And he came to me and said, what do I do? Now, I, I had by then developed what I call a covenantal doctrine of the church. Therefore, I could say covenantally, the, 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 the Bible does command that we get baptized. There is a, there is by Jura Divino, I don't, you know, what we got there is you, be baptized. What must I do to be saved, says Peter, to, to Peter. Well, be baptized. That's his answer. He doesn't say prayer, sin is prayer. He says, be baptized, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that. It's, it's a means of grace towards being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. Back to this quote that we've been talking about. And what is baptism? It's entering into the visible church. It's, it's the joining into the church. And so I knew that, and I could have quoted that to him, but I have a real, I hope you think by now I have a bit of a hat pastoral heart. I really do. I, God, I, I mean, I want him to be good with his parents. And my evangelicalism told me that, come on, baptism's not essential. That, that's just something, that's a good thing maybe, but it's not, that's not. You're not saved by baptism. I couldn't say that. But God commanded it. And I had a real crisis of, of pastoral conscience. Do I, con, do I counsel them to be baptized, contrary to the will of his parents, and lose, was it that big of a deal? Well, God commanded it. Or do I say, yeah, he commanded it. And that's what, I mean, Ben was the one that was pushing that one on me, by the way. You know, I was kind of wanting to hide. 
But he kept, isn't it, is that a command? Yeah, it's a command, you know. What does he say? Make disciples by baptizing them. It doesn't say that. Isn't that a command? Yep, it is. So I couldn't get around it. Couldn't fudge. And I realized I had a major crisis. Because on the one hand, I, I, didn't, I couldn't imagine that our God was arbitrary. That he just gave commands for the sake of commanding things. I had well before then made a, a vow that if I, that I had to, whenever I came upon a teaching of Scripture, if I could not understand it as good news in relationship to the gospel, then I had not yet done my homework as a pastor. I should be able to, in anything the Scriptures teach, be able to explain to you why this is 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 ontologically is essentially is a is is somehow related to the very nature of the gospel itself that you do this. So if God commands me to do this, I should be able to say that's good news. He's trying to save you somehow by that command. He just isn't arbitrary. Don't you think? Yeah. Do you think he's just do you think God just kind of eh, let me kind of do some puppet strings over here. Let's just let's just put a few laws in there to make sure these people kind of, you know, get the message here that I'm the Lord. Oh. And so I looked at Bim and I said, Bim, I know that I should tell you to be baptized. But I also know that I can't tell you why, other than that God commanded it. And that's not good enough for me, not, not to at least give you pastoral care. And that set me on a journey that eventually re- resulted in a book that I probably should have published, but I never did. People, I, I circulated it a while, but it was called the, uh, uh, the Church, An Essential Element of the Gospel. And it's somewhere up there in the thing. And, and here's the logic. Bim's parents with their Eastern sensibilities, defined orthodoxy not by what you profess only, but mostly by presence. By what presence are you in? And they were right. They were teaching me. (laughs) And I do a study, and you see it right here. It's not in the Word, but you can see some of the stuff that we discovered here. There's never been a time apart from redemptive history wherein you are saved apart from divine presence. And divine presence is something that is mediated vis-a-vis the ordinances, the means of grace. We call them sacraments. So apart from the sacraments, apart from joining your partaking of the divine presence of Christ that's in the body of Christ, vis-a-vis the institution of communion and sacraments and under the government of Christ, etc., prophet, priest, and king, you don't have the fullness of Christ. So finally, I was able to say to him, he ended up getting baptized, and praise God, his parents were wonderful people, and they found some way to get around having to excommunicate him. I met his parents at the graduation ceremony at Yale. They they were so appreciative for all the good stuff we've done in his life, and I just really fell in love with him. But the point is, that's that's what this is all about. It's It's going to change the way you think of conversion if you believe in the church, as a soteriological topic, not just an ecclesiastical topic. You're going to be, it's going to change what you advise someone to do if you want the fullness of Christ. It's not going to be what I was advised when I became a Christian, going to a full gospel church down the road at Mount Perrin Church of God. Hey, get a second born-again experience through the receiving the Holy Spirit through tongues. It's going to be join the church if you want the fullness of Christ. That's total Christ, fullness of Christ. i got to stop. Thank you for letting me tell you that story.